Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Hello and good morning from a really gorgeously sunny autumnal Belfast. Pretty much my favourite kind of weather. My least favourite is muggy, sort of warm and damp or warm and raining. Horrible. How do you dress? Badly is my answer. Always so badly. But cool and crisp. Throwing a little bit of a breeze and that is my idea of the perfect day. But enough about me because it is British, Australian, Kiwi, Irish and South African launch dates for my new book, Do Let's Have Another Drink, my biography of 101 anecdotes about the late Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, based on her private correspondence, the diaries of her friends and enemies and interviews with some of those who knew her who so kindly shared some of the stories that have never been published before. The book will be out in America and Canada through Simon & Schuster on November 1st, available as it is now in Britain, Ireland, Australia, South Africa and New Zealand in hardback, ebook and audio narrated by the fantastic Fiona Hampton. And it would be remiss of me and failing in my duty to my publishers and wonderful publicists. I've been so lucky with um, the team I've had for this book, uh, not to share with you some of the fantastic reviews we've received. And I'd be lying, this does make me obviously feel quite good as well. Two of these reviews uh, will be out this week in print in Britain's The Times and The Daily Telegraph. Both are online to subscribers as of now, which is how we know that The Times has called the book entertaining and compelling, and The Telegraph says it's full of laughter and wisdom. I raise my glass to him. Oscar-winning writer Emerald Fennell, creator of Promising Young Woman, who some of you may remember also played Camilla Parker Bowles in seasons three and four of The Crown, and Nurse Patsy in Call the Midwife, has called Do Let's Have Another Drink Utterly Glorious. Award-winning showrunner Nichelle Tramble-Spellman, whose interview with me is the interview, is probably just really Nichelle and I talking, <laughs> interview makes it sound so formal. It's just us having a, the, a wheel of a time about what books and TV shows we like to watch. Um, that's the season one finale, I believe. Uh, she called Do Let's Have Another Drink a compelling read. Historian Susanna Liscombe said it is wonderful, hilarious and moving. Anne Seba, who recently appeared on this podcast a couple of episodes ago to discuss her biography of Wallace Simpson, says do let's have another drink will raise the spirits of anyone lucky enough to read it. Adrian Tenniswood, author of the acclaimed aristocratic history The Long Weekend, said it's affectionate, scholarly and side-splittingly funny. Royal correspondent Kinsey Schofield says the book offers the Queen Mother as you've never seen her before. Owen Emerson, assistant curator at Hever Castle, very kindly said the book is a triumph and New York Times best-selling author Deanna Rayburn called it wonderful while Tracy Borman, best-selling of the new hist- best-selling author, excuse me, of the new history of the monarchy, crown and scepter, has described it as utterly captivating. That absolute ego biscuit barrel out of the way, I wanted to share with you, uh, single malt history listeners, a couple of the anecdotes that didn't make it into "Do Let's Have Another Drink." Um, I had about three of them set aside for the podcast, and I'm 
delighted to be able to share them today. The first of them is called the Butler's Commission, and it took place when the future Queen Mother was still the young Lady Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon, youngest daughter of the Scottish nobleman Claude Bowes-Lyon, Earl of Strathmore and Kinghorn. She divided most of her childhood between their estate in England and their magnificent ancestral home in Scotland, Glam's, said to be the most haunted private home in the British Isles. The Butler's Commission. While at Glam's, Elizabeth's father was particularly keen about maintaining the estate's forests, felling and planting as necessary. Even at the best of times, Claude was disinterested in dapper dressing. He often closed his favourite old coat together with a piece of rope. Sometimes he liked to don overalls to work as a lumberjack felling any marked trees, where one day he was joined by an itinerant forester. Since he was enjoying their conversation as they worked, Claude did not reveal that he was an earl. Instead, he told his new colleague that there was a big house nearby, the Castle of Glams, where, if he went to its kitchen door, the butler would give him five golden shillings from the local laird. That night, Back at the castle before dinner, Claude gave his butler five gold shillings, with the instructions that if a forester called, he was to be given the money, a hot meal and a room for the night. The next day, back in the forest and back in disguise, Claude was working with the same forester, who told him he had been correct about Glam's generosity. He had called at the kitchen door, as Claude suggested, where the butler gave him two gold shillings. It was then that Claude realised his butler had secretly been taking a 60% charitable commission. So the young Lady Elizabeth had many siblings, including her eldest sister, Lady Mary. Elizabeth travelled relatively widely, or at least by the standards of the day, she travelled often uh, to Italy with her family in the Edwardian era before the Great War of 1914, as told in this story, Margarita the Lovely Donkey. In 1909, eight-year-old Elizabeth and her family posed for a portrait painted by the Italian artist Alessandro Catanicitti, in which David, her youngest brother, and Elizabeth appeared building a house of cards in front of their parents. The family were so fond of Barson the butler that they insisted he be in the portrait as well. Catanicitti was an on-the-rise portraitist, son of a more famous father in the same field, Giovanni and it may be through the influence of Elizabeth's mother, Cecilia, that he was selected. Elizabeth's grandmother, Frances, the Dowager Countess of Strathmore and Kinghorn, spent her winters in Italy, as did Cecilia's widowed mother, Caroline. Elizabeth's first holiday abroad was aged six to visit Caroline with Cecilia at the Villa Capone, Caroline's house on the outskirts of Florence. There, they were sometimes joined by Cecilia's younger sister, Violet, who Elizabeth called Aunt Vava, my very clever Cavendish Bentig aunt, who took her on educational visits to churches where she saw Michelangelo's work, the studios of local painters and to the Uffizi. Later, they stayed with Caroline in her new home on the Italian Riviera near Bordighera, where Elizabeth was more interested in an animal she befriended, as she told her father in a letter home. There is a dear little donkey here called Margarita, and we put it in a little carriage and drive it. It is so quiet. have got nothing more to say, except it is a lovely garden. My best love to yourself. Goodbye, from your very loving Elizabeth. 
The opening decade of the 20th century dimmed happily for the Bose Lion family, with the birth of Elizabeth's first nephew John, born on New Year's Day 1910, to her eldest brother Patrick and his wife Dorothy, the Duke and Duchess of Leeds' daughter. Nine-year-old Elizabeth, who was with the rest of their family at their English estate of St Paul's Waldenbury, called John's birth a great excitement in her diary. And later the same day, she went to a children's fancy dress party hosted by their neighbour, the Countess of Lytton. Elizabeth wrote, It was great fun. And there was another fancy dress party three days later, hosted by Agnes, Lady Werner, to which Elizabeth and her brother David went accompanied by their elder sisters, Mary and Rose, or May and Rosie, as Elizabeth called them, in a diary entry for the day that ended with the summary, It was great fun again. There were programmes too, and supper at half past nine. We went away at ten. Elizabeth's interest in her diary had, like it does for many children, started strong, only to peter out by February, fall into a death-like slumber by March, from which it was revived for a couple of entries the next year, after which it was abandoned entirely. There was a national period of mourning for King Edward VII's death that May, in which the whole family joined by wearing black, although so many people were mourning the late king that Cecilia struggled to find any shops in London with stock left. This was followed for the Bose Lions by the summer wedding, also in London, of Elizabeth's eldest sister, Lady Mary, to a fellow Scottish aristocrat, Sidney Buller Fulton Elphinston, 16th Lord Elphinston. Elizabeth was one of Mary's bridesmaids, and, to their honeymoon, she sent a letter to Mary, asking, Wasn't it funny when they showered Sidney and you with rice? How far did you get with the shoes fastened to the back of the motor? P.S. Please tell me if I am to call Sidney darling or dear. Another story was how her big cousin Charles Bowes Lyon was involved in one of the great shipping tragedies of the Edwardian era, sometimes called Canada's Titanic, told here in an anecdote I called The Death of an Empress. At the end of May 1914, the headlines were full of another shipping tragedy. This one had nearly killed Elizabeth's 28-year-old cousin, Charles Bowes Lyon, an engineering graduate from the University of Durham, who had been unpacking in his first-class cabin on board the Canadian luxury liner The Empress of Ireland when it was accidentally rammed by a Norwegian freighter in a thick fog only a few hours after departing Quebec City for Liverpool. The ship was plunged into darkness about six minutes after impact when her electricity failed. Hundreds of passengers, including Charles Bowes Lyon, crawled out of portholes onto its side as the Empress of Ireland capsized into the freezing St Lawrence. Just over 1,000 people drowned or died from hypothermia. Pulled from the water by a rescue craft, Charles Bowes Lyon was one of 465 survivors. During the Second World War, Elizabeth, by then the Queen Consort, took in a young aristocrat's daughter who had a very unhappy home life. Her name was Alethea Fitzalan Howard, and her story is told here in Lord Fitzalan's Daughter. This uh, comes with a content warning. Alethea's diary details her struggles with self-harm, which some listeners may find distressing. And if you do so, I can recommend that you skip in this podcast two and a half minutes ahead from this point, and you will miss that part. Thank you. During the war years, annual pantomimes were organised at Windsor Castle, and friends were invited to stay often to keep the young princesses company. These included the Queen's niece and the princess's cousin, Margaret Elphinstone. 
and Lord Fitzalan's daughter, Alethea Fitzalan Howard, both of whom left historically useful records of their time in the royal household. At Queen Elizabeth's behest, Alethea stayed for a particularly long stretch, an act of kindness on the royal's part as it rescued Alethea from watching her parents' difficult marriage disintegrate further. Alethea wrote in her diary, I've got to the stage now when I can hardly bear to be with them together. Poor daddy cannot stop irritating her with every word and action almost, and she can't or won't exercise patience with them anymore. It's dreadful to see him unhappy, as I know he is. I can only play a silent part by being nice to daddy. I wondered too, with a sickening grip at my heart, whether one day, far ahead, I might be the central figure in a similar tragedy. Oh, God preserve me from such a thing, whatever else I suffer. Unfortunately, Alethea at boarding school was soon severely bullied by classmates who were very jealous of her friendship with the royal family. The bullying reached such an nadir that Alethea's diary reveals harrowing details of self-harm. She writes in one entry, Suddenly I got up and fetched my knife and tore the flesh in my forearm till I was exhausted and couldn't cry anymore. No one will know what I did tonight, and even at the moment I'm asking myself why I did it. She records the future Queen Mother as always being very, very sweet to me. Whether Elizabeth knew of Alethea's pain is doubtful, or at least questionable, given how little these things were discussed outside immediate families and sometimes within them in the 1940s. Fans of the Netflix juggernaut hit series The Crown may recall the season two storyline of the familial kerfuffle over where Prince Charles, the future king, should go to school. His father, Prince Philip, played that season by Matt Smith, wanted his son to go to his own former school, the Scottish boarding school at Gordonston. Others wanted him to go to the nearby English boarding school of Eton so he would be closer to his family. The Crown has the opposition lobby, uh, as it were, led by Prince Philip's uncle, Lord Mountbatten, then played by Greg Wise. In reality, the pro-Eton movement was led by the Queen Mother, the family member with whom Charles III later said he felt closest. The school debate is told in this anecdote, Gordonston versus Eton. The Queen Mother was particularly close to and protective of her eldest grandson, Prince Charles, whom she thought should be sent to Eton, as had her father and brothers. Beyond that family connection for the Queen Mother, Eton College is close to Windsor Castle, which offered the added advantage of keeping the young prince close to his family. Prince Philip countered with Gordonston, his alma mater in the Highlands, with its emphasis on outdoor activities, self-reliance and physical fitness. Gordonston, the school that had brought Philip to Britain in the first place when the young prince voluntarily joined his Jewish headmaster fleeing from the Nazis to find a new school elsewhere, won out in the end. Prince Philip thought it would toughen Charles up by removing him from any pampering in the palace. Princess Marina, uh, that is the Queen Mother's sister-in-law, Marina of Greece, Dowager Duchess of Kent, had a withering take on this to Prince Philip, as she said, 
how like you to send him to the only German school in Britain? The Queen Mother overheard this and said later to her sister-in-law, I've always wanted to say that, but didn't dare. The Queen Mother later had lunch at the home of her old friend, the photographer Cecil Beaton. He invited a few friends, including Diana Cooper, Lady Norwich, who arrived clutching her imaginatively named Chihuahua Doggy, whom she held throughout the meal. When conversation turned to Prince Charles and his experiences at Gordonston, the Queen Mother said, quite tersely, I suppose now he doesn't need to be toughened up anymore which everyone around the table correctly interpreted as a jab at her son-in-law for sending Charles to Gordonston. In the 1970s, the Queen Mother met her daughter, Princess Margaret's boyfriend, told here in Roddy. Shortly before, photographers snapped Princess Margaret at the beach on the private Caribbean island of Mystique with her boyfriend, Roddy Llewellyn. The Queen Mother encountered him without trousers, wandering around her former marital home, Royal Lodge, looking for help with fastening the studs in his dinner shirt. He went to the ironing room, which he found empty, before turning around to see a bemused and amused Queen Mother clutching her pre-dinner gin and duboni. Oh dear, she beamed politely, as if he was dressed completely appropriately. After asking him was he having a nice stay, he confessed why he was wandering around Saint-Culotte Royal Lodge, and at that point she helped him with the studs and cufflinks and didn't mention it at dinner. To turn to another costume drama reference, many may have seen the hit series A Very English Scandal about the disgrace of politician Jeremy Thorpe played in the show by Hugh Grant. Interestingly, Thorpe married the Queen Mother's former niece by marriage. Hugo Vickers had first met the Queen Mother when he was a teenager in the 1960s and boarding at Eton, from where he volunteered as a guide at St George's Chapel in nearby Windsor Castle. He also began attending Sunday services there, where, on a November morning, he met the Queen, holding the hand of her youngest son, Prince Edward. The Queen Mother, who hardly ever missed church, billowed into view, accompanied by an 18-year-old Princess Anne. Her hand was outstretched as she approached Vickers to ask, And who are you? Hugo Vickers, ma'am. Ah, yes, with recognition. For quite some time, Vickers was so convinced by the Queen Mother's tone that he kept trying to figure out how she could have known who he was. It was only as he began his career as a biographer that he realised that she had absolutely no idea who he was on the day at Windsor. It was just her way of putting me at ease and making me feel special, he wrote later. He spotted more of the Queen Mother's linguistic tricks 16 years later, when she was guest of honour at a fundraiser, to which she arrived in a pale turquoise gown set off by pearls the size of eggs. The Queen Mother spotted her niece Marion Thorpe, an Austrian concert pianist who, because she was Jewish, had fled to Britain before the war to escape Nazi anti-Semitism, and there she had married George VI's nephew, the Earl of Harewood. Their marriage had since ended in divorce, and although Marion curtsied to the Queen Mother at the fundraiser, the Queen Mother kissed her on both cheeks to show she still considered her family. Standing awkwardly next to them was Marion's second husband, Jeremy Thorpe, one-time leader of the Liberal Party and a disgraced politician ever since he was charged with plotting the murder of Norman Scott, a stable hand who became a male model who became Thorpe's lover and then his blackmailer. 
Thorpe was acquitted by law, condemned by public opinion, and Marion stayed married. The Queen Mother had never particularly warmed to Thorpe, even before his murderous mayhem with the male model. She had always thought Thorpe was impulsive and difficult to predict, which, given the subsequent court case, seemed fair. For Marion's sake, she extended her hand to Thorpe at the fundraiser and said, Hello. Standing nearby, Hugo Vickers was impressed with the tone the Queen Mother used, describing it as brilliant, neither friendly nor unfriendly. It invited no intimacy whatsoever. Thorpe slunk back again. Vickers himself was at that stage working on his biography of the aforementioned acclaimed photographer Cecil Beaton, who had passed away four years earlier. He had died Sir Cecil Beaton. However, despite their years of friendship and the unquestionable role Beaton's photographs of her had played in solidifying her carefully curated public image, the Queen Mother had refused to attend Beaton's memorial service. She had considered him her friend, until the posthumous publications of his diaries, in which, along with numerous compliments about the jolly, girly, sympathetic, darling Queen Mother, were many, many snide remarks about her weight gain, and some particularly cruel ones about the state of her teeth. Elizabeth was sufficiently hurt, as well as embarrassed and angry, that she refused even to send a proxy to represent her at Beaton's memorial. Three years later, Anne Vickers was working on a new biography, this one of Vivian Lee, the British actress who had scooped two Oscars, firstly for her role as Scarlett O'Hara in 1939's Gone with the Wind, and secondly as Blanche Dubois in 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire. Vickers was also chairman for a charity performance which the Queen Mother attended along with a dinner afterwards. When Vickers told her at supper that he was writing a book about Vivian Lee, the Queen Mother replied, She was so beautiful. I'm glad you're doing it. Such horrid things come out about people after they die. In the Queen Mother's case, it had already started. As Vickers noted later, the Queen Mother lived so long that the revisionist set to work when she was still alive. The first critical biography of her had come out the year before. Originally published as Queen Elizabeth, a portrait of the Queen Mother, and written by journalist Penelope Mortimer, it was later reissued with the more telling subtitle, An Alternative Portrait of Her Life and Times. The Queen Mother asked Hugo Vickers if, as a biographer, he thought it was help or hindrance to have known the subject. His considered response that it was that it was useful to have met them, but perhaps not to come from the same world. Vickers later wrote critically praised biographies of Wallace Simpson, Duchess of Windsor, Prince Philip's mother, Princess Alice of Greece, and five years after her death, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. And so the very last thing I wanted to leave you with today was uh, earlier this week I was doing, um, I was invited back on BBC Bristol as part of their Ask an Expert series people send in questions about some specific things and they contact the radio show contact experts they know. Uh, I was One of the questions they asked was about the Royal Company of Archers, which many of you will have seen uh, during Elizabeth II's funeral last uh, month. They are the, the Royal Company of Archers are the monarch's official bodyguards in Scotland. And um, 
And I was asked about, you know, would I come on and talk about how they were founded, etc. And did they start as royal bodyguards? But uh, I just wanted to let you, uh, this amused me a little bit. I um, wrote down two out of three of the Latin translations I had to, to do. And just to show that I am nothing but honest when there is a whoopsie on my end. Uh, so this, but it was also, I wanted to share it as well, because actually the history of the Royal Company of Archers is genuinely very interesting. But this is uh, from BBC Radio Bristol with uh, John Draval and myself. And we're going to get an answer to it. Keep your questions coming. Not just you, Dean, anybody. 08000 855 uh, Your question, your answer continues now with a question and an answer. Hopefully, level three answer. We have an expert for this question by Roger. Can you tell me more about the Royal Archers? Were they a battalion set up to look after the Queen? You may recall the Royal Archers were the uh, Guard of Honour, I suppose for Queen Elizabeth uh, when she was in Scotland. Well, Gareth Russell is a royal commentator and author of uh, Let's Have Another Drink, a biography of the Queen Mother. Uh, somewhat, somewhat famous for that, was she, was she not, Gareth, really? Uh, yeah, it was very important for me, John, to do the research uh, by, <laughs> making, <laughs> by, by making every drink. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Great fun to write. I bet it was. was she, she, she was a fan of gin, wasn't she? Gin and Jubani, actually. And, um, so gin's sort of the mixer, John, which gives you an idea of what you're dealing with. I say in Whoa. the book that... Um, you know, so you, after... you take Dubonnet and you add gin as the mixer? Yeah, and then you put a slice, can't stress this enough, a single slice of lemon, which is supposed to take away the bitterness, and I can assure you it doesn't. Um, Whoa. But I, I said in the book that, you know, after one, you'll need a taxi, after two, you'll need an ambulance, and after three, you'll need a priest. Um, they are, <laughs> they, they are they're, they're tough going. They're tough wow, going. wow, wow. I, to be fair, um, it, it, I know the Queen liked, uh, the Queen Elizabeth liked de Bonnet. I bought a bottle of de Bonnet, and I, I actually, it's sort of tribute, any excuse. Uh, I tried it. Of course. Whoa! Oh, God, yeah, this is the, you know, I didn't know whether to drink any more or clean the toilet with it. But anyway, um, yeah. hey-ho. Uh, so, um, talk, tell me about the Royal Archers. Sure. The Royal Archers are what? So the Royal Company of Archers dates from the latter half of the 17th century. Their official founding date is 1676 uh, during the reign of Charles II, Merry mm -hmm. Monarch of Womanising and Bed-Hopping Lore. Yeah. Uh, Initially, it was not founded uh, with an intention to be a royal bodyguard. The road to how it got there was paved by sort of that political instability that follows the, the House of Stuart wherever they went. Uh, by the time Charles II died in 1685, the company had received government approval to meet to practice archery in and around Edinburgh. Uh, despite his many I can't stress that enough, many illegitimate children, Charles II had fathered no legitimate heir with his Portuguese wife, Catherine of Braganza, who, by way of a tidbit, is credited with making tea popular in the British Isles. So I, I don't understand why there's not a statue of her everywhere. Um, but the throne passes to his Catholic brother, James, and, and he lasts until he's overthrown, flees to France, and many people in Scotland uh, continue to support James. They're called Jacobites. They don't mm -hmm. believe he should have been overthrown. 
The Company of Archers, however, pledges allegiance to the new regime and they receive their royal charter in 1713 from Queen Anne. But this debate over which side of the royal family should rule rumbles on for several generations. Uh, There are major rebellions in 1715 and 45 to put the Catholic Stuarts back on the throne. And as part of the crackdown after the defeat of the 1745 rebellion, the government bans tartan from being produced. So the royal company loses their uniform. But really the debate rumbles on until the last direct Stuart dies in 1807. And after his death, the threat of the Jacobites is judged to be over. And so at that point, the British King George IV decided this was a perfect time to really mend the rift by making serious overtures to Scotland. And as part of that post-Jacobite royal charm offensive, in 1822, George IV goes to Edinburgh where he issues the invitation for the Royal Company of Archers to serve as the King's official bodyguard when he or she is in Scotland. Um, they have a they have by the stage a really proven track record of, of loyalty and bravery. Their mottos in Latin are like Del Gloria Varis, which is glory through strength, Nemo me impuni la chesset, nobody provokes me with impunity. And uh, you know what, Tom, I'm not going to lie to you. I wrote down the translation for two of these and not the third one. You could have fudged that completely, but I really yeah, appreciate I, your honesty there, sorry, Gareth. No, listen, it's uh, Dulce Pro Patria Periculum, which is it, uh, uh, it's like a good thing to endure risk for your country. I'm yeah. sure that's wrong. So they have a very strong history of uh, okay. military service far stronger than my history with live Latin on air. Uh, so in, in the current day, their duties are predominantly ceremonial. Of course, royal bodyguard duties have shifted more to yeah. trained armed professionals. But what they continue to do is they serve as a guard of honour when the monarch is in residence at Holyrood House Palace in Edinburgh, which they've been doing since George IV's first visit there in 1822. If King Charles is within a five-mile radius of Edinburgh, the Royal Company of Archers send a group to attend him. Uh, They continue to carry their bows when in parades, but typically they're they're flaccid, I believe, to indicate there's no immediate danger. And of course, as many of us will have seen from Queen Elizabeth II's funeral last month, they continue to attend all major ceremonial royal events in Scotland. So they have, the. It's. I mean, and they still, since 1676, have had, it has to be a Scottish member of the aristocracy who serves as their captain general or company's head first was the Marquis of Athol and the current one I believe is the Duke of Buccleuch. So it's a company that values preserves and celebrates Scottish culture own traditions as a company, those of the monarchy in Scotland, and it has a current membership of just over 500 who wear the now fairly famous dark green livery or uniform. So not founded initially to be a bodyguard, but that's how they ended up becoming it. Excepting your little stumble on the Latin, that was a comprehensive level three expert answer you gave there, Gareth. Um, And and from a man who has clearly suffered for his art in the past. Uh, The author... It's so tough. the, 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 The author of Do Let's Have Another Drink the biography of the Queen Mother. Um, I might try that one, uh, but I think I, I, the one you mentioned there. But I might try that at the weekend because it sounds like right. I might need a weekend to recover. Uh, Gareth, Indeed. thank thank you for being our expert <laughs> on this. I'm so grateful. Bye. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. What an expert that was. Uh, Gareth Russell there, uh, royal commentator, author of the book Do Let's Have Another Drink, the author, the biography of the Queen Mother. Thank you so much uh, for listening to that. Um, this, uh, all I can say is that writing and researching Do Let's Have Another Drink was truly one of the joys of my professional career. It was so fascinating. I ended up collecting about 150 stories and it was a 
deciding on the 101 that went in were was uh, tricky, but it means also I can share some of them with you. But the one, my 101 favourites are in the book, um, which is out with HarperCollins as of the time of broadcast in the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, the Republic of Ireland and South Africa. It has been narrated on audiobook by the wonderful Fiona Hampton. I've listened to it, love it, can very much recommend it. It's also available on Kindle uh, or ebook in general. And for American and Canadian listeners, it will be available through Simon & Schuster on November 1st, 2022, um, and with an equally gorgeous different cover. So I cannot tell you genuinely how happy I am this book is out and the reception has been mind-blowing. It's been a truly wonderful experience and again just to wrap it up I would like to thank everyone that it's mentioned in the book but I would like to truly and sincerely thank everyone who spoke to me during the course of the research, those who knew the Queen Mother, those who liked her, some who didn't and I take very seriously the, the hope that these memories will be preserved and I genuinely am very grateful for everyone's time as I am for yours. Uh, thank you and have a safe and happy incoming week. Mm-hmm.